So first, I want to say congratulations. <laughs> congratulations on surviving an anxious week. It was an emotional roller coaster, right? I know included for some of us, okay, maybe just I'm speaking for myself, way more times refreshing lists of vote counts and so on than I had hoped to be doing this week. But of course, it wasn't just the delay in results that made this week feel so anxious and suspenseful, the stakes so high. This anxious election week came at the culmination of an anxious four years. Many of us, I think, have been like holding our breath, in a sense, since election night 2016. Anxiously wondering how long the person who was elected that night would occupy the White House and if our democracy would survive, however long that was. This week has come towards the end of an anxious 2020. The year started with an impeachment hearing that failed to address those questions. And then before we knew it, the world was shutting down due to COVID-19. As the pandemic took over and has persisted, it's been a year of anxiety in regards to our health, in regards to our economy, in regards to many of our personal finances, in regards to our relationships, to our schooling, to our jobs, to our families. And of course, if this all wasn't enough, it's been the year that we've grieved the losses of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and others. A year we've seen record numbers of protesters in the street calling for justice for George Floyd and police reform, and we've seen violence as white nationalists have pushed back. It's been the year we've lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg and seen a new justice added to the Supreme Court in record speed. And of course, here in California, we've survived the anxiety of another record fire season where smoke kept many of us trapped in our home for weeks. We have all been through so much. I hope the last 24 hours has brought to many of us just a bit of space to take a deep breath, to exhale a bit, a bit more freely, feel some relief, even perhaps, as Connie mentioned, some joy. Maybe we just take a moment now to take a deep breath together. One more. Even as we breathe though, I acknowledge that the joy we feel, we may feel, is tempered. This week has not brought a resounding repudiation of our current leadership that many had hoped it would. In some ways, this was too close for comfort. As a number of political analysts have named this week, and I'm sure more will be in the weeks to come, what we've seen demonstrated by this election is that Donald Trump may have lost the presidency. 
But Trumpism, however you define that, is with us still. Though many across the country were celebrating yesterday, over 70 million people very much were not. Many of our fellow American citizens now distrust the results of this important election, believing more in their hero and his self-protective conspiracies than the diligent work of members in their local communities who testify to the veracity of these results and the lack of evidence for anything fraudulent taking place. We've talked a lot this year about viruses, how they work, how they function, how invisible they can be as they pass from person to person, how contagious, but also how lethal. As we're learning about COVID-19, even those who recover may be left affected in long-term ways that are not yet clear. I believe some of what we will be discerning in the days and weeks to come is the state of disease our nation is currently suffering from. I think we as a country have been infected with some toxic, lethal ideology. No doubt a version of this illness has been with us for centuries. But in recent years, a new strain has developed and the viral infection has been spreading in powerful new ways. Many folks don't see it. They don't recognize the symptoms. They may not be interested in taking precautions to reduce the spread of the disease. And so often it's those who are the most vulnerable those on the margins of society that suffer the most powerful effects of this dangerous pandemic. Of course, the virus I'm describing doesn't have DNA to be sequenced so a cure can be introduced. Our pharmaceutical companies can't fix this problem. What's the vaccine for this virus that's infected our body politic? Today is the end of a series we've been calling Remembering the Collective, about not just recalling that we are a part of something bigger, some bigger collective, even amidst the uh, isolation of social distancing, but it's also about restoring our connection, our sense of connectivity. To remember also means to put the various members in the body back into relationship with each other. Now that has one set of challenges when we think about it in regards to this Haven community. It has another when we think about it in regards to our nation. How do we put this broken body together? Is that even possible? Is that even something we should want to do? As we've been looking at it in this series, in his first letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul was speaking to a divided community in Corinth that had within it very different people with very different ways of life. As we saw last week, he was passionate in his frustration with the ways that these divisions were impacting the collective, just desecrating even the practice of their sacred communal rituals like the Lord's Supper as the wealthy we're getting drunk and overfed at communion, and the working class and poor were going hungry. He spoke to them about the importance not of cutting one another off, 
but of finding common identity as diverse members in this single collective he called the body of Christ. He reminded them in his conversation about spiritual gifts, how much they have to offer one another and how much each of them possessed that could actually serve the common good. And as he built his argument on what it means to overcome the separating forces of division and live into being a diverse collective, he reached the climax of his argument by describing his ultimate prescription for how this community might actually embody the challenging unity he was calling them to. Words that I think our national collective might need to hear right now. The words of Paul wrote in this climactic call to growing collective unity are words many of us have heard before, perhaps so often that we can't help but hear them kind of awash in romantic sentimentality because this passage is one of the most famous in all of scripture. It's commonly read at weddings as a young couple prepares to take vows and commit themselves to one another full of hope and optimism. But that was not the setting that these words were written for. They're actually intended to speak into the kind of moment more like what we find ourselves in today. So as I read these words afresh this morning, I invite you to try to hear them in a new way. Imagine you are part of one of these early house churches in ancient Corinth. Imagine you are hearing this letter read in the context of one of these small communities in which folks have been literally sharing a table each week with others in this small community who have been hurting them, who've betrayed their trust, who've lied to them, who've spread rumors about them. You're hearing these words amongst a group where some people have dismissed your opinions. Some people have belittled your gifts. And if you're honest, you've done some of that to them too. Interpersonal relationships have been breaking down. Factions have been forming. And in Paul's letter, as you've been sitting here with these folks in the community, you've been hearing him call out members of the community for the various ways they've contributed to these relational breakdowns. And then you hear him say this, picking it up with the last verse of chapter 12. I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I, I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, 
but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put away an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these, is love. So that's some powerful teaching. But what are the important takeaways from Paul's instruction here? What might you have heard in the context of that early church community? What might you need to hear now? I'm just going to invite us to look at two insights from this familiar passage today. First is this. Agape love is the way beyond measure. And I'm going to unpack that for you. Agape love is the way beyond measure. So Paul sets up this whole discourse on love with some specific terms I think we would do well to unpack a little. First is the word he uses for love, agape. What's the significance of that specific Greek word? Well, the reality is in English, we only have one word generally that gets translated as love. It's, but Greek has multiple words that we translate to love. And though they're certainly connected, they're also distinct. The downside of only having one word for love is that we kind of miss the distinctions. And with that, some of the strength of what's being said to refer to them. So let's just quickly look at some various versions of love. In Greek, we have eros. This is the most easily summed up as like romantic love, love that has desire, love between partners, love of intimate companionship. That's different, that's distinct from philia, which is better understood as like brotherly love, humanitarian love. I love all people in some sense because they are human. It's kind of like, um, a, maybe you could say a bit above eros. It's not as kind of um, about what I'm gonna get out of whatever we're interaction we're having, but it is still um, kind of impersonal. It's the word that's the origin of the name of a city many are celebrating this week, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And then there's the word Paul is using here, agape, which is something kind of beyond either of those two. What is this love? Episcopal Bishop Michael Curry, who you may have seen, made, he was made globally famous as that black preacher who spoke on love at the royal wedding of Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. He's written a book on this um, agape love and its importance in the work of faith and justice. 
And he describes agape love as a firm commitment to act for the well-being of someone other than yourself. A firm commitment to act for the well-being of someone other than yourself. It's a love that's not utilitarian. It's not about what you get out of it. It's about extending your area of concern in practical ways. The second Greek word that seems helpful to unpack here is what we have translated as excellent. I will show you a more excellent way is kind of the setup for this whole passage. But the word here is, um, I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce this right, but hyperbole. It's the uh, origin of the word hyperbole. But this Greek word literally means beyond measuring, beyond comparison. And I think this is an intentional choice of words, not just a figure of speech. Because Paul understands that the Corinthians view the world in a very competitive way. Measuring things against each other was a big part of how they made meaning. It's also why they were having a hard time getting along. They were measuring the status of different people's gifts and abilities in their community against one another. And Paul is calling his audience to something that rises above those kind of evaluations that they naturally make. He's calling them to something more sacred, something more eternal. Paul starts his eloquent description of agape love by, by pointing to these various ways of being that those hearing him in Corinth would have seen as most desirable, perhaps most helpful in a spiritual community. He's talking about how you win these games of life, how you reach the peak of whatever activity you're engaging in. In this case, building a community of faith. So he's talking about maybe you could be the most supernaturally attuned, perhaps even able to speak angelic messages. Or you could be the most articulate, full of evident wisdom. Remember how Katie talked to us about the value of rhetoric and philosophical wisdom to the ancient Corinthians. So he's saying maybe you could be the most wise in the way you speak, you could have had a huge gift of faith, faith that could perhaps even perform miraculous signs and wonders like moving mountains. Or maybe you're the one who demonstrates the most dedication to the cause, being willing to sacrifice everything in a demonstrable way for what you believe in, whether that means giving away all your possessions or enduring brutality in your body for the cause. And yet Paul is saying all of these things that you can measure and value have no meaning if this way beyond measuring is missing. This measureless way brings meaning to all that you can measure. Hearing Paul talk of this way beyond measure brings to mind a character to me, from a show that's broken into the cultural consciousness this year from Disney Plus, The Mandalorian. My family's been watching this show that comes from the Star Wars universe recently because the newest season has just come out. So. And in the show, we meet a bounty hunter who's part of this order of mysterious warriors, the Mandalorians. He lives by a set of values that seem to set those Mandalorians apart from many of the ruffians they encounter particularly in the bounty hunter trade. The group has a code they live by. And when they make a choice based on that code, they, they just clarify their motives by simply saying, 
This is the way. This is the way. So what is the way beyond measuring of agape that Paul was describing? How did he expect the Corinthians to engage it? That brings me to the second takeaway for today. Agape love is not something you feel. It's something you do. Agape love is not something you feel. It's something you do. All the descriptions Paul gives of agape are active. Agape is not an emotion. It is not a sentiment. It is a set of actions. All the language Paul is using to describe here what this agape is, it is active language. He's speaking with a series of verbs to tell the Corinthians about what agape does, not what it is, what it does, and what it does not do. So if we look at the first couple of phrases, phrases that, again, ring of sentimentality to many of us because we've heard them at these weddings, and we hear them as descriptions, love is patient, love is kind, that translation misses something. Paul here is actually using verbs, not adjectives. It should sound something more like love demonstrates patience. Love performs kindness. The focus is on the action. Then he contrasts those with the activities that are not agape love. Agape does not envy. Agape does not boast. It does not arrogantly brag. It does not act rudely. It does not insist on its own way. It does not easily irritate. It does not harbor resentments. Bishop Curry has a helpful way of describing this antithesis to agape love. So I'm going to read that passage at length because I think he makes this point beautifully. And we have it on the screen. You might think the opposite of love is hate. Watch out. You're falling into the trap of vague sentiment again. If love looks outward to the good of the other, then its opposite isn't hate. Its opposite is selfishness. It's a life completely centered on the self. Dr. King referred to this as the reverse Copernican revolution. To be selfish is to put yourself in the place of the sun, the whole universe revolving around you. Forget morality. At that point, you've left reason behind. Life becomes a living lie because no amount of smarts, money, or accomplishments puts any one human at the center of existence. Intuitively, we all understand that nothing good ever comes out of selfishness and greed. Selfishness is the most destructive force in all the cosmos, and hate is only its symptom. I'm going to repeat that one because I think it's powerful. Selfishness is the most destructive force in all the cosmos, and hate is only its symptom. Selfishness destroys families. Selfishness destroys communities. Selfishness has destroyed societies, nations, and global communities, and it will destroy the human race by laying waste to our planet if we let it. I don't think any of us have to work too hard to imagine what Paul is describing here as the opposite of love. We've all seen it. 
in our relationships. If we're honest on our worst days, we've seen it in ourselves. And what seems to be a personification of this anti-agape way of being has been occupying an outsized amount of space in our news headlines, our social media feeds, and our collective consciousness over the last four years. You could say it's this anti-agape way, this way of selfishness that is at the heart of this moral virus our nation is infected with. Paul's words to the churches in Corinth describing their challenges could just as easily be describing ours. These acts of selfishness, the boasting, the deceit, the insisting on one's way, rejoicing in wrongdoing, these are not the way of agape. So as Paul goes forward, he returns us to the activities that are the way, the actions that are our only hope for addressing the selfishness that ails our collectives. Rejoicing in the truth, this is the way. Bearing all things, this is the way. That term in Greek, bearing all things, it's an image of sheltering, of becoming a barrier that creates safety for another under its cover. That is what it means to say we must bear all things. We are willing to put ourselves forward, put our bodies on the line if need be, to cover those who need protection. Bearing all things, this is the way. Believing all things, maintaining a capacity to trust that there is a genuine truth and there are moral go goods in the universe worth standing up for, amen? Even amidst an onslaught of spin and deceit and fake news and alternative facts that beckon you to abandon all hope of standing on any firm ground. Agape calls us to maintain belief in a truth, a real truth, and say this is the way. Hoping all things. Persisting with an eye towards a horizon that has yet to dawn with the belief that it someday will, despite the bleakness of whatever moment we are in. This is the way. Enduring all things, facing the threats, real and imagined, that selfishness lobs our way, and yet pressing on, committed to what we are called to. This is the way. Friends, there are certainly reasons to be disappointed this week. There are reasons to be discouraged. The selfishness of capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, Christian nationalism. These diabolical forces have been given a lot of room to circulate through the bloodstream of our collective over the last four years. And the result of this election shows that there are places throughout our country, in red states and blue states, in cities and rural communities, in the South and in the North, where the virus has grown. The infection rates have spiked. But agape requires us 
to look beyond the diseases that threaten our democracy. It calls us not to cut off our infected body parts or give up and simply surrender to the disease. Instead, it asks us to look to the places where those infections have been active and persist in that work that is needed to treat the diseased and heal the collective. Believing in what endures beyond what is just of this moment. The week has been evidence, not just of the presence of disease, but also the presence of folks working tirelessly on the front lines to combat it, just like our medical professionals in the COVID-19 pandemic have been. We have seen local election officials in large and small communities across the country bear with intense scrutiny, even threats of violence as they try to faithfully do their work. We have seen community members rally to defend them as they do shout, count every vote. We've seen courageous candidacies breaking barriers and winning elections. I'm just going to show you a few of them to celebrate. Candidates like Richie Torres, Amandere Jones, the two first openly gay black men to win their seats in Congress. Candidates like Cori Bush, the first black woman elected to represent Missouri in Congress. Sarah McBride, the first trans woman to become a state senator. And of course, in Kamala Harris, we celebrate our first female vice president, a woman of color, the daughter of immigrants. But perhaps one of the best examples we've seen this week of that persistent commitment to our collective healing has come from Georgia. Two years ago, Georgia State Representative Stacey Abrams ran to be the governor of Georgia. It would have been a first for Georgia to elect a black woman to its highest state office, but Abrams narrowly lost the election due to what seemed to be clear voter suppression. Stacey Abrams did not let the sting of defeat drive her from the work that called her into public service in the first place. That is agape love in action. As she says it, I sat Shiva for 10 days, then I started plotting. Building on the long legacy of activism in Georgia, as represented by icons like the late John Lewis, Stacey Abrams spent the last two years organizing on the local level to push back against suppression of the vote and the movement she was a part of ended up adding 800,000 new voters to the electorate in Georgia. And these voters do not only seem to have delivered Georgia's 16 electoral votes to a Democrat for the first time in 28 years, they have managed to keep control of the Senate, still an open possibility where other communities have failed. Because John Lewis, Stacey Abrams, many other activists in Georgia have persisted in believing all things, enduring all things, hoping all things, their state will have the opportunity to impact our whole country as their special runoff elections decide control of the Senate in January. Agape love has impact beyond 
what we can sometimes imagine. It is the way beyond measure. Agape love also means we don't just thank the activists of color in Georgia for taking action that has benefited us personally. Agape love says we see the risks you're taking to stand up against oppressive forces. We see you, activists of color. How can we help protect you? How can we stand with you against white supremacist backlash and revenge? How can we support you as you continue to work for justice? in your community. Haven, we are a collective. We are a collective who is working to identify as a community that is safe, diverse, and Jesus-centered. Our Jesus-centered orientation means we follow the one who came not to run for office, not to topple Caesar and take his throne, but to stand with the marginalized, who Caesar and the other selfish power holders were oppressing and demonstrate agape. His agape love extended itself. It bore all things, even unto the cross. As he told his closest followers on his last night with them, no one has greater love than this. No one has greater agape than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Agape love, this is the way. So as we end this series, I invite you to consider what are the things you are called to bear with agape love? Where are the places you have to lean in, not concerned about what you feel, but what you can do. How can you help the viruses that plague our national collective? How might we as a community embody this agape with one another? And how might we partner with each other and with others to bring the healing we long for? May we today in our places of relief and joy, as well as our places of real concern for our future. May we breathe in the agape love of God for each of us. I'm just gonna say, let's do that together. Let's breathe that again together, but this time recognizing that we have received agape love from the heart of the universe. May we breathe that in, the agape love of God for us. And may we, held in that love, allow that same agape spirit to rise up and help us walk the way beyond measure. Amen. <laughs>